Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate, one by one, the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Again, um, if you're visiting with us, we're blessed to have you as we continue our study through the book of Acts before we begin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, again, we thank you for another Lord's Day where we are fed with the word of life. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be gracious to us as we focus upon your word. May your face shine upon us that we may know you the true and living God, as you have revealed, revealed yourself to be, for Christ's sake, amen. Um, Acts 21 is the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey, um, tours in which he not only preached the gospel and planted churches, but he also nurtured and discipled those churches, spending time with God's people, building them up in gospel faith. And as you recall, um, ever since his three-year visit, the time in which he spent in Ephesus in Asia, Asia Minor, he, he felt a burden of the Spirit to... Go to Jerusalem. We read in chapter 19, verse 21, if you want to look there, it says, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. After I have been there, he said, I must also see Rome. Now, along the way, brothers and sisters throughout the regions, Tyre and Caesarea in particular, um, urged Paul, also through the Spirit, not to go. Because trouble awaits him there as the Holy Spirit revealed to those very people. But nevertheless, against all advice and many tears, uh, Paul moves out. 
Paul continues on um, in verse 15. We looked at last week. Notice there, after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us. Now, we learned from that little portion of Scripture just how contagious courage can be. That is, the courageous leadership of Paul was very contagious in that the very people, some of the very people who were warning him not to go, ended up traveling with him, knowing that Paul was a hated man, knowing that Paul has a bullseye on his head. They were so affected by his gospel bravery, they were willing to be identified with him and head upward to Jerusalem. Now, we've seen in this section um, the rich fellowship amongst believers, good friendships amongst believers, Paul's courageous determination to do God's will, although danger awaits him, and that is via prophetic insight. Don't go. (laughs) Paul, don't go, brother. But he goes. Now, remember, we were told back in chapter 20 and verse 16 that Paul wanted to actually be in Jerusalem by the time of Pentecost, and that does seem to be the case by the mass amount of people described in and around the temple in the latter part of the chapter, which we'll look into next Lord's Day. And remember, his primary purpose for wanting to be in Jerusalem was to bring a collection of the saints from Macedonia, to bring an offering, to bring alms to the church in Jerusalem. Actually, when Paul gives his defense before Felix in chapter 24 and verse 17, he says that the reason he came to Jerusalem was in order to bring alms, to bring an offering. So here now, having arrived, we see that he's not only determined, Paul is not only courageous, but he's also gospel-flexible. Or, perhaps, he's gospel hypocritical. The title of the message is, is this gospel flexibility or gospel hypocrisy? Something we'll, we'll try to determine as we move our way through the text this morning. Notice now here in verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And following, the following day, Paul went in with, with us to James, and all the elders were present. So he's gladly met, and here's James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, um, the local assembly of elders, plural, plurality of eldership here. Um, this James, by the way, is not the brother of John, sons of Zebedee. Remember, he was executed um, back in chapter 12. This James is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, and he's leader um, of the church there in Jerusalem. So James and these elders are ministering to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, while Paul, for many years now, has been ministering primarily to Gentile believers, um, two very 
different cultural environments, to say the least. Now, there's no mention of the apostles here, beloved, because typically at this point, they're out preaching and evangelizing in parts of Judea and Galilee. This is about 27 years after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? 27 years. So notice, again, we see a plurality of elders. First point to make mention of is that the leadership of the church is a group of men. Plurality of leaders. This is how the early church was ruled. Elders that were raised up from out of the local congregation. We saw this back in Ephesus, amen? When Paul called for leaders from the church of Ephesus, he called the elders from Ephesus to meet him in Miletus for a change of guard, to prepare them for his departure, a plurality of men. Friends, there was no singular bishop, there was no hierarchy, there was no system or associations of churches in Scripture. You do not see that. Each church was self-governing, autonomous, with the leading plurality of elders from within. And that is what churches today ought to seek to do. Denominational structures of hierarchy, the kind of you know, pyramid and pecking order, friends, that is of human ingenuity. You don't see that in the scriptures. When we read the word bishop, elder, leader, you know, th those are all synonymous terms for the leaders of the church. The, the, the term pastor is used once. That is in the book of Ephesians. So a pastor and an elder um, are, are synonymous terms. There was no head bishop. As a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon, um, he, cons he considered systematized denominational ordination that is beyond prayer and the laying on of hands within a local assembly, he referred to it as foolish and confusing popery. Not popery, but popery. In other words, bishops and pontiffs, that's all unbiblical folly, as Spurgeon put it. That is why we have a plurality of elders here at Pacific Hope church raised up from within this local assembly. So here then in Jerusalem in the first century, verse 19, these elders heard the report of all the wonders of Paul's third missionary journey. Now notice when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, rejoicing in the conquest of souls by God's sovereign grace through the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit, Gentiles reported over and over again, caused to be believers by the grace of God throughout the Mediterranean world. The report comes in, there's Paul, they rejoice, as they should. Now notice, these Jewish elders here in Jerusalem, they no longer carry any of their Gentile animosity, the kind of animosity they once had as Jews prior to their own conversions. They rejoice. Nevertheless, there's something on their mind. There's a problem here in the church at Jerusalem. So it's almost as they're saying here, wow, Paul, this is great. Praise the Lord, but 
Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13, in case you don't know. <laughs> Verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? Literally, friends, that's myriads of Jewish believers, tens of thousands in Jerusalem at this time. These are true believers who've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, those who believe and have entrusted themselves to the substitutionary work of our Lord Jesus Christ. His work on the cross, his death, his resurrection. They've turned from their sin and they've turned to Christ. Believers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, these are saved people. So you see the many thousands, Paul, among us here in Jerusalem, most likely at the time of Pentecost, all right? But there's a problem. Notice, these believers, these Christians, are all zealous for the law. In other words, they're passionate about the ceremonial law, the mosaic ceremonial law, the very things that pointed to Christ, sacrifices, rituals. And remember, things that have been kept now for 27 years in Jerusalem. They are zealous. That's a strong word. Zealot actually means to be heated. Too enthusiastic. Overzealous. They're overzealous, friends, about that which is superseded. That which is finished since Christ has come, the one who fulfilled all Old Testament pictures. Zealous for the law. Now, although there is no salvation in keeping the law, and friends, there never was. Was anyone ever saved by keeping the law? Don't ever make the foolish statement, well, in the Old Testament, to be saved, you had to keep the law. Nonsense. The law always served as a mirror. You're jacked up. You're a failure. You need to be fixed, and taking the mirror off the wall can't fix you. Amen? You need God's grace. The one who declared the law sends the one who fulfills the law. His son, who is the Christ, the royal anointed one, his only begotten son, who comes and in your place upholds the law and then laid down his life in the place of all who believe. That's the gospel. Bare bones, gospel. All these Old Testament pictures have been fulfilled. The practices, the feasts, the rituals, they're no longer necessary because they pointed to him. He's come. Now, early on in the church in Jerusalem, those things were not forbidden for the time being. Again, in the church at Jerusalem, those things were not forbidden for the time being. For instance, if you were converted as a Jew to Jesus Christ and you felt badly about not keeping the Sabbath because you kept it all your life, feeling uncomfortable about doing anything else on the seventh day of the week, the Apostle Paul, anointed by God by way of divine inspiration, referred to that as having a weak conscience. Remember? 
is having a weak conscience. Therefore, practice is to be, or, or patience is to be practiced on their behalf for those who are more mature. Amen? Simple principle we see throughout. That is, so long as they did not think that following the Jewish ritual contributes to their salvation. They could still participate. Okay? Now, if you believe solely in Christ right here in Jerusalem, 27 years after his death and resurrection, participation was allowed for the time being. So the question is, how long? Possibly, I believe, until Christ's prophecy regarding that temple was fulfilled in 70 AD when that temple was destroyed, as Jesus said it would be. So these were Christian people who hadn't yet shaken the practices of Judaism there in Jerusalem, in and around the temple, and, and granted, friends, it was a problem. Okay, this was a flaw, as many Jews were very slow in giving up cultural customs. That's what's going on here. They were still hung up on ceremonies like Passover. Who's the Passover lamb? Jesus. They were still hung up on the ceremony of Passover, keeping Sabbath, um, restrictions on what they could eat, what they could wear, but they were still going through the religious routine, and they loved it. They were zealous for the law. And I can imagine growing up in Jerusalem under the shadow of this mighty temple, this system, all of this is ingrained in you. Can you relate to this? Just put yourself in their sandals. Seriously. This would be a difficult transition to make, humanly speaking. But after 70 AD, all the rigidity ended, as Jesus said it would. Religious rigidity. It's hard for us to shake certain things. For instance... Do you know that there are Protestant churches, okay, Protestant, to protest? Protest from what? What was the Reformation all about? It was a magisterial Reformation, reforming from out of Roman Catholicism, which was very much like Judaism. But even today in Protestant churches, they have somewhat of a Catholic feel to them, okay? Consider, for instance, they do not teach in a Protestant church baptismal regeneration. In other words, that baptism saves you. But sometimes it, it kind of sounds like it. A Protestant church will not teach transubstantiation, that the, the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus, but sometimes it, 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 it sounds like it. You see what I'm saying? You feeling what I'm putting down? <laughs> Trying to be cool for anyone who says, that cat's not cool. <laughs> Just joking. So, so here you have genuine believers, zealous for the law, and these who are zealous for the law have heard circulating rumors. Verse 21, 
They've been told about you, Paul, brother, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, would you agree most rumors have some thread of truth in them? Most, not all. Some rumors are indeed flat-out lies. But typically, rumors consist of some truth, half-truths that people twist or exaggerate. So here, basically what they're saying, Brother Paul, word on the street is, you're no longer Jewish. And the people are greatly disturbed. Your, your, your Jewish brothers and sisters are, are disturbed. So James and the plurality of eldership from the local church in Jerusalem tell Paul, uh, the Jewish believers are hearing bad things about you. That Jews should no longer circumcise their children. That Jews should no longer observe the Mosaic rituals, ceremonies, feasts, kosher dietary restrictions, and to top it all off, they're saying that you forsake Moses. Now, that's a strong word. That's the apostasy word, by the way, to forsake, to walk away, to turn from, to abandon. That's the rumor, Paul. Okay, friends, clearly, clearly Paul taught that you are not justified by keeping the law. Amen? That is obvious. You're not saved by being circumcised. Amen? Circumcision, by the way, in case you don't know, was a sign of the covenant for the Jews. He taught you're not saved by those things. No one ever was saved by those things. They all pointed to someone greater. Christ. Paul never demanded that, that Jewish believers at this point in time abandon these particular practices. What he taught very clearly was that Jews who are believers ought not to impose these rituals upon Gentile believers. That's clear. Jewish Christians were free to either observe or not observe the Mosaic law. But don't for a minute think that it provides atonement for you because only Christ is the atoning sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Only Christ is our propitiation. Verse 22. So that's what's going on, Paul. Hmm. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you are around, that you've come. So they propose a remedy to the problem. Their solution is a kind of sponsorship, okay? Verse 23. Therefore, do this that we tell you. Okay, we have four men. They're under a vow. Take them and purify them, yourself rather, along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there's nothing to the things which have been told about you, Paul, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. 
Okay, remember, this advice does not come by way of divine revelation. This is a multitude of elders who saw fit for this to happen at this particular time in Jerusalem, and and Paul agrees. He goes along with it. We're not even sure if he fully agreed with it. So James and the elders here in Jerusalem, they say, here's how we can persuade the brethren. Do what we tell you to do. Four men are under a vow. Okay, this is the Nazarite vow from which I read in number six this morning. They're under this vow, and this vow was an act of dedication. It was pretty, a pretty aggressive um, act of dedication, an, an aggressive vow. Um, Nazar actually means separation, the Nazarite vow. It's an act of separation. Um, number six describes all the details. I'm not going to go back over that again, but basically... Um, To take this vow, you can't drink any wine, you can't have strong drink, you can't eat grapes, you can't eat raisins. Basically, the Nazarite was not even to smell the cork of a fine bottle of wine. That's the idea. Do not come into contact with the dead. You let your hair grow until after the vow, and once the vow is fulfilled, they would shave their heads, take the hair into Jerusalem, and burn it. Before the temple, it was at the doors of the tabernacle. Now that the temple is erected, you take it to the temple, to the priests. So, Paul, Paul, in order to disprove all the rumors Um, This is a way we can unite the believers in Jerusalem. If you'll pay the expenses of these four men in the temple complex, okay, during their vow, everyone will see that you're a good old Jew. You feeling me, Paul? (laughs) That you're concerned not to toss aside our rituals, not to toss aside our ceremonies that are centuries old. Okay, by the way, paying expenses means animal sacrifices were offered for those vows. You get the picture? That's what it means. You pay the expenses, that is, the sacrifice of animals on the altar. Now, does Paul believe that animal sacrifices atone? No. Not for a second. Yet Paul submits to their suggestion. He pays for the sacrifice of these four men. So he says, they say to him, look, if you will do this, Paul, they, that is the Jewish believers, will know that there's nothing to the things which have been told about you. Rumored about you. Notice verse 25. Now, I'm not sure... But this could be a manipulative tactic on their part, trying to press him into this when they say this in verse 25. You know, concerning the Gentiles who believed, we wrote, having decided that they should only abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. For what they, so what they do there, 
is they repeat the decision of the Jerusalem council way back in Acts chapter 15, years before this incident. And the question was, should Gentiles be circumcised? The answer was no. But just be sure that they uphold these two concessions for this time. Number one, that they abstain from sexual immorality and the idolatry that's associated with it. They went hand in hand at this time. Pagan worship, idolatry, and fornication, sexual immorality, they, just, they were all just mixed together. Okay, so that's, that's one concession. And number two, in order to maintain, maintain unity, tell these Gentile believers to, to forego how they eat in front of Jewish believers. You remember that? You remember that, chapter 15? Hello? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> it was a compromise in their eating habits which would be an offensive expression to a Jew. So just as Jewish believers were not bound, or just as Gentile believers were not bound by Jewish rituals, the idea here was that Gentile Christians should not eat animals that have been sacrificed to idols. Don't do that in front of a Jew. It would be incredibly offensive. But this was a courtesy for the sake of their conscience. That's what that's about. So they bring it up here. I don't know if it's to kind of press him into partaking into this vow. After all, remember what we decided years ago with regard to the Gentiles before whom you've been ministering all over the known world, Paul. So can you do this for us now? Can you come alongside these four Jewish boys, these young men who've taken a Nazarite vow? Can you pay their expenses? Pay for the sacrifices on the altar, Paul? Can you do that? Can you? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> now, keep this in mind also, beloved. A, a kind of peace had settled in Jerusalem over the years. Remember the hostile, aggressive persecution? Remember? There, there's a kind of peace now that over the course of two-plus decades... The church has now grown to some 15 or 20,000 people, so much of the hostility from unbelieving Jews has been quelled by the fact that many Christians who are Jews in and around Jerusalem still adhere to Mosaic ceremony. Festivals, rituals. So here, Paul, um, he's convinced... He's prepared now to undergo purification rituals with regard to a Nazarite vow. And he does so to, to pacify Jewish scruples. Verse 26, then Paul took the men. And the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now, why the purification ritual for Paul? Paul wasn't under the Nazarite vow. Now, he, he had taken that vow back in chapter 18. Amen? You remember that? Yeah, just say yes. And, and that makes me feel good that you were paying attention back in chapter 12, 15, and 18. 
<laughs> I say it in love. <laughs> he had taken the vow then. He's not under the vow here. He's just sponsoring these four men. So why would he have to be purified? Because this brother, Paul, just came in from Gentile territory, and the Jews would perceive, they would think of him as being unclean, those dirty, filthy Gentiles. So he would have to go through purification by way of the Levitical priesthood. Who's our great high priest, as we heard this morning in Sunday school? Who fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king? Jesus, all this stuff pointed to him. He's our great high priest. But in order for Paul to be the benefactor of these four men, he would have to be purified by a human priest in Jerusalem. And he has to participate in this ceremony. All right, so I do not believe that this was good advice of the plurality of elders in the church at Jerusalem, my brother says, to say the least. <laughs> now, they obviously have no idea what their counsel will create. Okay? Now, are these godly men? Oh, yes. These are godly men who had no notion that once Paul appears in the temple, this is all going to go very wrong. Real bad. When unconverted Jews from Asia recognized Paul, the man they hate, and they tried to kill him by way of a riot back then, they see him. And we'll save that for next time. Okay, lesson. These beloved elders, godly men, might have been well-intentioned in what they said here, but they made a mistake in the application. Can you relate to this with the counsel you've provided others? Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. We can relate to this because with good intentions, we have given poor advice to another brother or sister. Not every circumstance in life is a slam dunk black and white issue, right? So don't ever come to me, well, I won't say that. <laughs> if you come to me and say, hey, I have a friend, I have a friend and this is what's going on, can you tell me what to tell him? I'll probably say no, I can't. Unless it's just black and white gospel related across the board. But if it has to do with a bunch of relational issues and you don't know the whole story, you're only hearing one side of it and I'm hearing it from you and not them, it's not most profitable to give advice at that moment. So here they give the advice and it's not the best. I don't believe. But does God work it out providentially? Oh yeah, we shall see. We'll get a taste of that this morning as well. But just remember this with regard to counseling, with regard to the plurality of elders in your own local church, um, the best of men are only men at best. These are good men, but they're mere men. Now, that being said, um, God does not expect us to know the future. 
They didn't know the future. God weighs our decisions according to the revelation of his word, test all things in light of. That's how he weighs our decisions along with the motives of our heart. He sees right through you. He knows every motive within our minds and hearts. So he weighs according to that way. And the choices we make, if they're biblical and our motives are right, God is pleased, but he never reveals the immediate outcome. Right? We never know exactly how things will pan out. These men did not know. So we grant them mercy. Next question. Did Paul make a wrong move here? Okay, Um, did he compromise when he shouldn't have? Is this Paul being gospel flexible or gospel hypocritical? Does Paul sin in this instance? Now, rather than saying what I think, I'll quote other men. Okay, the late great John Stott does not think that he was in the wrong. He said this, quote, According to his conviction, Jewish cultural practices belonged to matters indifferent from which he had been liberated, but which he might or might not himself practice according to the circumstances. He also says about James, Stott does, that he, James, had a sweet and generous spirit. The solution that he's advocating is a concession in the area of practice only, end of quote. The late, great James Boyce disagrees with the late, great John Stott when he wrote this in his commentary. We might plead that he did it with good motives, but right motives do not make a wrong action right. They did not make this right. This, what Paul did here, was hypocrisy. It was a compromise. He was going to offer a sacrifice in front of the very priest who crucified Christ, this is a turning of his back on the sufficiency of Christ. Now, in my opinion, says Boyce, the great proof that Paul was wrong was that God, who is sovereign over the details of our lives, did not allow him to do it. Sometimes you and I act wrongly. We're prepared to do wrong things, perhaps with good motives, but quite often with bad motives, and God simply slams the door on us. And I'll disagree with Boyce there. No, he does not always slam the door on us. Boyce continues, but what we do matters to God even if at the moment it does not seem to matter a great deal to us. Absolutely agree. Now, the next two and a half chapters of Acts record events associated with this decision. Now, we've we've covered two and a half chapters in Acts, and it covered seven years. (laughs) This covers two weeks. This is a pretty significant situation. Decision. So, does Paul sin here? I mean, is this a low point in the Apostle Paul's life where he compromises the gospel? Perhaps. I'm not, I'm not sure. But there's some things for us to consider, all right? Some things to consider. In Acts chapter 16, after the church confirmed 
that circumcision is not required for salvation, Paul soon after meets Timothy, who is half Jewish. He was trained up and raised in Judaism, and the first thing that Paul does is what? He has him circumcised. Why? For the benefit of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that Timothy could enter with Paul into synagogues to preach the gospel, into Jewish territories. Gospel flexibility. However, on the other hand, when others were insisting that Titus be circumcised, he absolutely refused, Paul did, to have Titus circumcised. Why? He was full-on Greek. Paul, flexible. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, though not being under the law, but under the law of Christ, not being under the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. Now, whether Paul was right or wrong in the decision, I do believe we can all agree that he did this most certainly because he loves the church. He loves the church. Lesson for us. Christian liberty, about which Paul speaks a lot, may cause us as Christians to appear to be enslaved for the sake of others. May appear. You see, because Paul is so free in Christ, he can put himself under a vow like this. He has before the Nazarite vow. Here, it's a sponsorship. Now, others looking in might indeed conclude, oh, Paul's under the law. He's bound by the law. He can't do this and he can't do that. How many people have you met, non-Christians, who think Christianity is that you can't do this stuff? Whatever this stuff is. See, Paul is actually so free. He's so free in Christ. Now, in a Nazarite context, he's so free in Christ, he doesn't need to drink wine. In another context, he's out with Gentiles he's abs- or Jews, he's free to drink wine. Under a Nazarite context, he can go to the barber every other week if he wants. Okay, but under the vow, he lets his hair grow. He is free. So as a sponsor to these four men, he is so free, he can go through the Levitical priesthood to be purified for the sake of his brothers. I believe that's how he sees the situation at hand. I mean, Christ is our great high priest. I don't need a priest. I don't need to go to a priest and confess my sins. Do do I? We go to the throne of grace in what way? Boldly. We are Christ's priests now, as you learned this morning, or you were reminded this morning through the Sunday school lesson. We're priests of the king. 
of the great high priest, representatives of God most high on earth. Not in our power, but the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this. Sometimes Christians want a priestly figure or a pastoral figure in their life just to tell them what to do. Some people just say, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me what not to do and I won't do it. You know, if an elder or pastor tells me I can do this, good. If my Christian friend does this or goes there or partakes of that, I can too. I will live my life vicariously through an elder, a pastor, or one of my brothers or sisters, whoever it might be. You know, but let me say this. Christian liberty in one area may be fine for one person and not best for another. Okay? You're sensible people, biblically-minded people. I'll let you figure that out for yourselves. What's black and white is black and white. Amen? The gray matters with regard to Christian liberty, you figure that out by the resident presence of the Spirit in the Word of God. Just because this gal or this guy has freedom in this area, you don't necessarily need to think that you have it. Amen? Or vice versa. One thing Paul was not was fanatical. You met fanatics? Paul was not fanatical. Now, was he vigilant for the truth? Absolutely. Culturally sensitive? Absolutely. Fanatical? No. Paul was not a fanatic. Sometimes in the church, you'll meet abstinence fanatics. They're bent towards legalism. They'd love it if they could have a list of taboos on the wall for every Christian to abide by. You ever met them? That's where you hear the old jokes in the old Southern Baptist life. You, you can't dance. Women need to wear dresses down to their ankles. If you play cards, that's of the devil. And then a list of other activities. Any of that biblical? No. No. Sex outside of marriage? Is that sin? Plain and clear. Adultery? Plain and clear. Drunkenness? Getting stoned? Is that clear? That's clear. I could go on. <laughs> Fanaticism can happen with doctrine. Young believers... They're learning doctrine, they love doctrine, and we have something called the cage stage, which is a really good idea to throw them in a cage and lock it up until they mature and their, their radicalism is quelled, and then you can let them out. Until then, they do a whole lot of damage. <sighs> Fanatics, don't be that. They turn every issue into a major argument. They major in the minors. That's what I mean by doctrinal fanatics. We love doctrine here, amen? amen? We love it. But they confuse important things or unimportant things, secondary things, as chief things, primary things. That's doctrinal fanaticism. Now, in this context where Paul is, we need to be heralds for the truth. Paul was a herald for the truth, while at the same time, and this is what I think we see here, is 
to maintain cultural sensitivity. One thing for certain regarding the Apostle Paul is that he never flaunted his freedom in the face of another. And another Christian, he never flaunted his freedom. He didn't get together with Jewish believers, pull out a ham sandwich, and say, look what I'm free to do. <laughs> Weakling. Did he ever do that? No. No. Henry Ironside tells a story. He tells of a friendship he had with a former Muslim from India. His name was actually Mr. Muhammad Ali. Not the one who floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee, but a Mr. Muhammad Ali, whose family owned a tea business. So this former Muslim came to saving faith in Jesus Christ while he was in America, and on one occasion, while visiting a church in the United States during their annual church picnic, um, a young lady came up to Ironside and asked, Mr. Ironside, would you like some sandwiches? And he said, yeah, I'll have one of each. She turned then to Mr. Ali. She said, would you like one? And he said, what kind are they? She said, pulled pork and ham sandwiches. He said, do you have any beef? No, the young lady said. Lamb? No. Fish? No. Then he said, well, thank you, young lady, but I won't take any. The young girl said to him, are you so under the law that you cannot eat pork? Do you not know that Christ, a Christian is at liberty to eat any kind of meat? And he said, yes, I am. I am at liberty to eat it, I know, but I'm also at liberty to let it alone, and let me tell you why. He said, my father, who's nearly 80 years of age, is at the head of our tea business. Now, I have to regularly return home to India and give him a report. When I return, I knock on the door, and my father says, Muhammad, have those infidels taught you to eat filthy hog meat yet? And he said, I will say, Father, pork has not touched my lips. And then he'll welcome me in. And I'll have an opportunity from time to time to speak to him about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, if I were unable to answer that question, I would not even be allowed to come into the house. So he said, yes, I have freedom to eat the pork, but I have freedom also not to eat the pork. End of quote. That, I think, is the spirit of Acts chapter 21. My wife and I have some Muslim neighbors that live down the street from us. And um, I've witnessed the gospel to him. We sit out front in the summer, so he walks by on his way to the local mosque right in front of our house. And um, one day they brought over some goodies, and they were really sweet, tasty. So my wife prepares them a meal one day. But in order to prepare them a meal, it has to be halal. It has to be sanctioned by Islamic law, ritually killed, this animal, this chicken. Um, a mantra has to be spoken over it as they look towards Mecca. So she had to go to this special grocery store to buy this halal chicken, prepare it, deliver it to them. They ate it. They loved it. But they were sure to ask us, how was it prepared? We said halal. What is that? Man-made false religious practice. If I want to have any impact on my neighbor, what will I do? Prepare it 
Hello. That's nonsense to me. Jesus said, as Matthew pointed out this morning, Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. What comes out of, it's what comes out of his mouth that defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, to eat with unwashed hands, which is a man-made tradition for the Jews, by the way. You would wash your hands, and these Jews would raise up their hands and let the water drip off. That wasn't even scriptural. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. As I said, I've shared the gospel with this Muslim neighbor, declaring that no one can earn their way to heaven as they believe you must. You must earn your way. Now, what are my wife and I going to do? Am I going to slip pork into the chicken as a joke? Would I do that? Is that culturally sensitive? No, that's nonsense. That's foolish. We wouldn't do that. With the hope of having a moment to preach Christ. So we purchased it according to their ritual. Which isn't true for us. It's not even true for them. But they'll find out the hard way, unfortunately, unless Christ invades their life. So, considering the counsel of these elders and the decision of Paul to sponsor these men who were under this vow making payment by way of sacrifice, Paul will be recognized in the temple courts by hostile Jews, and he will be pummeled. He will be beaten. But Roman soldiers are going to intervene. What are they going to do? They're going to chain Paul, just as it was prophesied back in Caesarea and Tyre. He will be chained. But through this process... As they save him from being beaten to death by hostile Jews, the Gentiles chain him, keep him under protective custody, and by way of this arrest, what's he going to do? He is going to preach the gospel speaking in Hebrew. And when he speaks in Hebrew, there's a dead silence in the courts of the temple. He's going to give his testimony of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to preach Christ in the very temple that in a matter of 11 to 15 years, at most, will be dust, as Jesus foretold. It will be destroyed by Rome, and adherence to Jewish customs will no longer be possible ever, ever again. And these faithful Jewish believers, believers who are in Jerusalem especially, zealous for the law, had to be waned, weaned away from their zealous Jewishness. And all of this God uses by way of his providence, whether they were right, whether they were wrong, God uses it for his glory and ultimately the good of his people. So I believe that this was more, personally, I believe it was more of a a matter of gospel flexibility. We look at the whole scenario rather than gospel hypocrisy, but I don't know for sure. You decide. Yay? You decide. But whether he was right or whether he was wrong, 
I think we can all agree he did it because he loved Christ's church. Amen. That's the main issue. That is the salvation of souls. The main issue is the salvation of, clo- of, of, of souls. So as I close, if you're here today and you're not entrusting yourself, your eternity, to this Lord, Jesus, the Christ, you have a responsibility. It's not to take some Nazarite vow. It's not to go see some priest. It's not to make a meeting with me or any other elder in this church. Your responsibility at this very moment is to repent and believe in the gospel, to believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that you are a sinner. And if you die in your sin, you will pay for your sin. And the payment is eternal hell. All alone, outer darkness, where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will continue to sin for all eternity. Repent of unbelief, repent of false belief, turn around, turn to Christ, entrust yourself to him, the one who forgives sinners, the one who paid the price for sinners, the one who fulfilled all that law, the one who fulfilled the ceremonies, the rituals, what God the Father demands. He fulfilled it all. He laid his life down on the cross. No man takes my life. I lay it down to bear the wrath of the Father against sin and sinners. You put your faith and trust in him, and you get placed upon your account his righteousness. So you're positionally right with God by way of faith in Christ alone, and you'll be saved from that just punishment. That's your responsibility, and only by the grace of God and the presence of the Spirit here to prompt and enable you to repent will you ever repent. Do not let this moment pass. Come to Christ and be saved. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture, the honesty of Scripture. Help us this day to weigh through these things, to consider these things, to apply these things, to rejoice in these things. And the one who fulfills it all, your Son, our Lord, Jesus the Christ, your only Son, our Lord. Amen.